Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Well, good morning. Great to see everyone. It's really nice and pretty outside because um, it's officially spring. That's kind of awesome. Um, let me just to start say a brief word of prayer for us, and then I'll begin. Lord, I ask um, the Lord, um, as we go into your word at this time, um, that you re reveal yourself to us in a more deep and profound way, that you would speak to us into the depths of our hearts, or that you would remind us of old truths that we might have forgotten, and that you would enlighten us and bring newness and freshness to our faith, that we could see you more clearly and live more faithfully. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Just in case you guys haven't met me or don't know me um, all that well, my name's Chris, Chris Harper. I, I work with the Office of Spiritual Life, and currently I go to Beeson across the way. I'm in my third year at Beeson, so that's been a, just a great experience to prepare to do ministry. Um, and I've really enjoyed working with Matt and all the other different campus ministers here um, and it's because one of the reasons I love it is because I was a Sanford student, too, way back, um, probably about four years ago at this point. Um, and a lot's changed for me at that time, but I really remember what it was like to kind of sit in your shoes and to come in this room where I think every now and then when I'm walking around the campus, I'm just reminded, like, this is what it feels like. We're, we're the week after spring break. It's kind of, we're in this home stretch, wanting to get done with classes, wanting to kind of see the end. You can only already start to kind of feel summer. Another thing, too, um, if you kind of look at this room or you can look at other different rooms on campus, you can see an incredible amount of diversity and an incredible amount of similarity. I'll explain what you mean. Diversity and similarity. You can easily look around this room, think similarity first, and you can have so, you, can, you realize you have so much in common with the people you're sitting next to, behind, in front of, up above, down below. So much in common. You know, we all go to the same school, right? We just got out of spring break. I just talked about us kind of wishing it was still break, but already kind of getting excited about summer. Like, we're getting towards there, right? We're in classes. You're in college. You're thinking about your career. You're trying to make all these very big, important decisions for your life. There's a lot about us that's similar. And then also, there's a lot about us that's unique. Like, we're diverse. Because we don't all come from the same place. We don't all come from the same background. We have different families. We have different cultures. We have different interests and desires for our lives. And where we go after this time at Sanford is going to be an expression of our uniqueness. There's a lot about us that's diverse. And I just kind of imagine... If there was some way for this to even be possible, which is kind of hard when you think about a room this size with this many people, but just imagine with me this, this hypothetical reality where we could all get together at a shared table, and somehow, some way, we could all have a shared conversation where every single one of you could have an equal voice, and you could talk about the experiences you've had with your life. You could talk about what is most important and meaningful to you. And you would also get to know others. And I'm sure we would learn, if this was possible, we would learn one thing among many things. 
that we are profoundly and tremendously unaware. We are profoundly and tremendously unaware. And our unawareness comes in two different ways. In one sense, we're unaware of the other people around us. We're unaware of each other. Like I was just talking about, you probably don't know how much you actually have in common with the person behind you or the person in front of you. And in the same stroke, you probably don't actually know how unique your life experience has been up to this point. That your life has been unique. God made you. God has walked with you. And at that same point, when you realize the difference and the similarity, you realize that some people at this point in your life have experienced a lot of joy. You've experienced a lot of blessing. You've experienced a lot of hope. And for some of you, the opposite has been true. Dave, you have to overcome real obstacles, real difficulty. And perhaps you know people that have had to overcome these obstacles and come difficult, like real suffering. So there's joy and pain. And we all kind of share in this experience, and we experience it in different capacities. And that's why I think it'd be interesting just to think about that table. What would it look like for us to be able to share in those inexperiences? And I talked about unawareness. I think the other thing we would learn is not just how unaware we are of, our, of each other, but how unaware we are of ourselves. A lack of self-awareness. You might have realized this as you've come to college. You start to learn more and more and more about who you are, how God's made you to be very unique and specific. But underlying all of this, and this is the true reality, the reality is that before we're lovers of God or before we're lovers of other people, we're lovers of ourselves. We love ourselves more before of anything else. Perhaps you realize this is true for you. And so all of this, these things, this lack of awareness of ourselves and a lack of awareness of others, the joy and the pain, it points to the need for hope. It points to the need for healing. And this is something we've been talking about this semester. If you come to campus worship on Tuesdays, Thursdays, we've been bringing this up over and over again, some weeks more prominently than others. What does God's hope and healing look like for the here and now? And I thought it'd be helpful just to at least, before we kind of get into a passage of scripture and look at this, to at least give some sort of definition for what is hope and healing. And I'll offer you this, that hope and healing is the effects of God's presence and activity in your life. Hope and healing is the presence and the activity of God's hope and healing in your life, which he works about in his right time. And he works about in his right time for his good purposes. So what does that mean? Well, when we behold who God is and what he's done, we experience the hope that life is more than just this immediate reality of brokenness, of disappointment, of shame, of difficulty and pain. It's beyond that. That's the hope. That we're drawn into future glory that has been dramatically changed by the work of Christ. And then there's the healing component. And it's one of the reasons why you've probably heard a lot of stories recently at campus worship. You're hearing lots of different stories of hope and healing, of redemption, of people experiencing encountering God in dramatic ways. Because we all experience it differently. 
Like hope and healing, the end result is not that everything is perfect. I hope you don't think that. But sometimes God works his restorative work in us over time. And sometimes there's dramatic healing, dramatic emotional, physical, spiritual healing. But sometimes we wait. And so today I want to look at another story with you, another powerful story of redemption from Scripture, and it's the book of Ruth. Now, no, I'm not going to read every single verse in the book of Ruth. (laughs) It's four chapters, and I really just want to walk through the book and highlight how God is bringing about hope and healing through these characters in the book, how he's demonstrating himself through it. And then I want to ask the question, like, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? And what does this mean for me? You ready? Is everyone falling asleep yet? Ready to go? All right, so if you have a Bible and you want to turn to it, please turn to the book of Ruth. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be moving through it. It's four chapters. If you're wondering where it is, it is right after Judges. And I'm just going to read the first verse for us because that really kind of cues us off context. We always want to know, okay, context. What's the context of what's going on in the Bible. And the first verse says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now from the very good go, you get this cue of where we are in history, the judges. You turn the page, we're in the book of Judges. I don't know how much you know about the book of Judges, but it's a pretty dark and depressing book. It's the book where you find Samson, and you find Gideon, you find these men and even women doing incredible things, incredible things in the name of the Lord. And at the same time, there's so much tragedy. There's so much war and death. And to be a person in the time of judges is to live in fear and to live in danger. And that's the context of Ruth. Living every single moment wondering, am I going to live this day? You easily make the wrong decision. I'll try to come up with an analogy of this. It made me think of Something like The Walking Dead, which I used to watch and don't really walk anymore, watch anymore. But one of the things that keeps is frustrating me whenever I try to pick it back up is the fact that all the characters I liked are gone. Everyone keeps dying, but that kind of supports the point. The fact is that nobody really lives that long in this time. And we're going to see that immediately in this first chapter. We're immediately introduced to a family, a family that is an Israelite family, Elimelech and then his wife, Naomi. And they go, obviously you heard me from the first verse, there's a famine in Israel. What does a famine mean? No food, no water, can't stay there. (laughs) So they go somewhere else. They leave this promised land that God has provided for them. So they go to a place called Moab, the country of Moab. And so Elimelech and Naomi, they're kind of doing the standard family thing. They have two sons. God blesses them with two sons. And they call them Malon and Kilion. Now, one of the things I'll just tell you about these names just from the, from the get-go is these aren't Hebrew names. So this is a Jewish family that's already trying to not be a Jewish family. And probably one of the reasons for that is because they went to a new country. They're trying to blend in. They're trying to fit in. They're already kind of stepping away from their history, trying to pave a new way in this foreign land. And they take on wives, these two sons, Orpah and Ruth. Now, this is when hardship strikes. 
They have family, two kids, they're married, they're looking great, and then the father dies, the one that like dies. And then the two sons dies. I talked about death. So already we've seen such tragedy. And what's left of this family is Naomi and these two daughter-in-laws. Three widowed women who have no means of providing for themselves, no means of working, food, protection. It's all lost. And all of a sudden you feel like it's going to crumble. And we were singing, great are you, Lord, Lord, the fact that it is God's breath that's given us life. So the giver of life. Well, how do you reconcile the fact that God gives life in the midst of such tragedy? That's why there's three other chapters. But Naomi being older, she can't remarry. She can't work the way she used to. She's older. She can't hit the field. She tells these two daughters-in-law, who are Moabites, they're not Jewish, he says, stay here. Go, go back with your people. I know you were part of our family and everything, but go back with your people because I can't support you. I can't guarantee your life. And she plans to go back to Israel pretty much to her sure death. And the first time she says this, um, Orpah says, all right. She weeps and she's crying, but then she goes. But Ruth, she clings. I'm going to read this in verse 15. This is what Ruth says after Naomi keeps insisting, insisting. Actually, it's Naomi speaking first in verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Like, Ruth's not leaving. Naomi's saying, you're not getting the picture here. You need to go. You will die. And this is what Ruth says. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. This is a powerful statement. And we could stop there, because that sounds good enough, right? It's really positive, a really positive commitment of oneself, like Ruth really laying it down the line. But let's take it further. Let's read the next verse. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts from you. How would you describe what Ruth is saying here? Like, what is the substance of what she's really saying? This promise that she's committing herself to, 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 to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Well, one, you get the sense of sacrificial loyalty. She is laying it all on the line. Not out of, like, moral or social obligation. She's free to go and be back with her people. But she sees this mother-in-law who is weary and broken and about to fall apart in her sure death. And she says, no, I will go with you. I will go, I will, I will stay where you stay. Your people will be my people. I married it in this family, and I will stay in this family. And it's at this point you realize that it's not just loyalty. It's coming out of faith. Ruth, who is not an Israelite at all, <laughs> she believes in the God of Israel. She believes in Yahweh. You can see it on the tip of her tongue in verse 17 where it says, May the Lord do so to me. She is acknowledging that this is the one true God of all things, of all creation, of all life. And she's committed. 
So in this one moment, she commits out of loyalty, but out of belief. She truly believes that as she goes back with her people, she'll be walking away with God. And so she is going to trust that God is going to do a greater work through her committing herself to Naomi. And so they go together, two widowed women, in the time of the judges, going back to Israel. And they go back specifically to Bethlehem, which is where Naomi is from. And they get back, and the, the, the town is all gossiping. It's like, this is Naomi? What, what happened to your husband? What happened to your family? This is such a tragedy. The gossip train just keeps going. And Naomi tells him, don't even call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, by the way. Call me Mara, for God has dealt bitterly with me. So they get back into town, and it's not like this story has resolved in any way or form. They're, they're in the midst of extreme tragedy and extreme difficulty. And the only thing Ruth can do, because Naomi can't work, she can't remarry, Ruth, the only thing Ruth can do is work. It's the time of the harvest. Hit the fields. And so she goes out to work. Now another thing we need to remember is that there were all these stipulations in the Old Testament. You can look in Leviticus, and specifically Leviticus 25 here, about how there were so many stipulations that God put in place for the impoverished people of the land to be taken care of, for sojourners and travelers to be taken care of. I mean, they're fleeing a famine. They're, they're trying to find food and provision for their life. And what this would look like sometimes is that, you know, if you're an owner of land, you would leave a little corner of the field, a little corner of the field, and you wouldn't pick it. And you would let people traveling glean from the harvest, take little pickings to provide for themselves and feed for themselves. And so that's all Ruth wants to go do. She's going to get food for her, for Naomi um, and herself. And so they go, and it happens that she goes to the land of a man named Boaz, who actually has a shared fam family line with Naomi and Elimelech. And she goes, and Boaz starts to notice this woman, this unknown woman, and he says, where does she come from? Who's taking care of her? Who does she with? And then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, I've heard about this woman. This is Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Moabite. She came back with her mother-in-law when she didn't, when her mother-in-law probably wouldn't have made it, would have died. She's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law. She's lost everything. And out of compassion, we see generosity poured out from Boaz. Generosity and kindness, which is just not human. He starts giving and breaking all the cultural standards that probably wouldn't have been extended to a Moabite person. It's like, no, let me make sure you're protected and cared for. You're sure you're a woman in a very dangerous place. My men won't touch you. Be with my young woman. You'll be safe. And then he starts to feed her, and they share a meal, and there's fellowship, and there's this camaraderie that just doesn't make sense when you think about the cultural divide. But it's the compassion and mercy that Boaz has, has, because of his walk with the Lord, that he shares this and pours this out on Ruth. So Ruth comes back from the day's work, and she has all this barley. She can't even explain it. And Naomi's like, what? How did you get all this stuff? You need to go back there tomorrow. <laughs> um, and so 
as the story progresses and some time passes, Naomi realizes that there's some, a possibility here that she didn't even dream or hope for, didn't realize that this was even a possibility. That fa- family, in the family lineage, the way Israelite, the Israelite culture worked, is that someone down the line from the same tribe and from the same family could redeem, actually take on the purchase of the land of a family like Naomi's that has fallen apart with death and tragedy. A person could do this, but they would have to do it through marriage. And Naomi's not a, can't be married again, and so it would involve Ruth being married. And so then this, this person would have to marry Ruth. And so Naomi basically counsels Ruth and says, you know, I think the time's now. We're making it, but we're not going to make it in the long run. How is this going to be resolved? And so she sends Ruth, and this is the surprising sort of unanticipated thing in the book. Ruth goes to Boaz as he's sleeping, and she lies down on the threshing floor, and then all of a sudden he wakes up. He doesn't even remember who he was. He's kind of in a sleeping slender, and he says, who are you? And she says, I am Ruth your servant, spread the corners of your garment over me, for you are a redeemer. Translation, it's a marriage proposal. She's saying, marry me. Marry me. It's controversial because, I mean, you just don't do this. But does Ruth have another option? How long is the harvest going to last? How long are they going to make it? But probably more surprising is Boaz's answer. He says, I'll do it. I'll do all that you ask. There's only one problem. There's always a but. But there's a redeemer ahead of me. There's a person in my line, in the, in the line of the family lineage that has the right to marry you, has the right to claim your inheritance, the right to claim the land that is owed to you. And so, but he makes a commitment. He says, tomorrow we're going to figure this out. I will go to him. And if he wants to take on you and Naomi, so be it. But if not, I will do it. And so the book of Ruth, I'm already in chapter 4, because we're almost at the end of this book, right? The book of Ruth builds towards its climax of this conversation between Boaz and what's only called as the Redeemer. And Boaz comes to him and says, my mic right there. Boaz comes to him and says, you know, Naomi's back in town, and her land is up for grabs. You could redeem it. And the redeemer, the unnamed redeemer, he says, okay, wow, I'm really messing up here. Um, the redeemer says, yeah, all right, I'll do that. I'll take on more land. This is going to be positive for me financially. I can do this. But then Boaz comes back and says, oh, there's just one thing. There's a catch. You also need to marry Ruth, the Moabite, the enemy. The Moabites are descendants of Sodom. I mean, this is the complete enemy of the Israelites. And then the Redeemer says, I don't know about that. (laughs) How about you do it? And so there's this exchange that happens, this conversation in this moment where Boaz's kindness and generosity has kind of continued forward to be way beyond the field, into the city, into where, like, your bread and butter is made as an Israelite man. He's before all the elders and leadership and saying, I will marry this Moabite woman. I'll do it. Because she has shown kindness. She is a worthy woman. She loves our God and loves her mother-in-law. And that is clear. 
And so the book of Ruth concludes with this powerful moment of Boaz getting married to Ruth. And from them comes a son. And the family line is going to continue. And in verse 14 of chapter 4, that kind of says a special word about Naomi, who is in the midst of grief, widowed, bereaved. She calls herself Mara, the bitter one. And it says this, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Now the seven sons, probably not going to immediately connect, but seven is, a, is the perfect number. So to reference the idea of a family of seven sons is saying, you got the perfect family. And so what the author of Ruth is saying is that Ruth to you is seven sons. She has blessed you over and over and over again. And though you've known pain and sorrow and have felt cursed in your life, you now know blessing. You now know joy through the loyalty and faith that has come through Ruth. What does this mean for us? One of the ways that I think we can answer this is looking at the different redeemers in the story. Looking at the different people who bring hope and healing that's ultimate origin is God. And the first you have to look at is Boaz, who is in contrast, very different from the unnamed redeemer. Look at the unnamed redeemer who counts the cost of this relationship saying, you know, you know the land's kind of nice, but you know, to be honest, I don't want to mess up my lineage with having a Moabite person in there. To be honest, I, I don't want to even deal with Naomi. This is really not worth my investment. And then you have Boaz who sees the profound virtue and kindness of this woman, who sees that, yes, she is the other, yes, she is the different, yes, she is the marginal and the estranged, and at the same time, she loves the Lord, and she loves the people around her. And then what you see through Boaz is the generosity and unceasing kindness of God pouring out through his commitment to marry her and to take care of her mother-in-law as well. That is one example of what redemption looks like in the book of Ruth. And the other you have to look at is Ruth herself. It's not called the book of Boaz. It's called the book of Ruth. So Ruth, as a redeemer in the story, you have to look at how powerful and transformative friendship really is. Not just casual associations and, you know, kind of knowing a bunch of people, but a life commitment like that passage we read. She is fully and completely committed to Naomi, even to the point of death. You have to think, I think myself, how many people in my life am I committed to the point of death to? And what you see through the book of Ruth is how powerful and transformative this is for Naomi, who really had no assurance of life. All goodness was robbed from her, and yet at the end, she is 
affirmed and given this blessing of the perfect family, a complete hope, and even healing. And then thirdly, you kind of have to look at Naomi, Naomi's specific... Sorry, this always happens, I don't know. You have to look at Naomi specifically, but to also look at the hidden Redeemer. The hidden work of redemption that's happening in the book of Ruth. And you start with Obed, the child that really shouldn't be. If you kind of let this story run through and through, Ruth should never have been allowed to have another child or extend a family. Like all the odds were stacked against her and her mother-in-law. All of them. And yet still, Obed comes, and a baby is born in Bethlehem, which points to another baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem. Like the same line of Ruth and Boaz is the same line that Christ comes from. And then Christ is the fulfillment of all our hope, all of our desire for healing. It's kind of like that song we were singing. That it's in Christ that all these promises we see in Scripture are fulfilled and true. That they can be yes. That they can be amen. And it's because of what Christ did. And Ruth, who's about a ministry and work of the lowly people of the field, receives this redemption, receives this liberation. And in Luke 4, when Jesus steps into the Sanhedrin, he pronounces a scripture to be fulfilled, and it's Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, it says that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, an opening of the prison to those who are abound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant all those who mourn in Zion. Like this is the hope that is present and realized in Christ. And it becomes more and more realized as we grow closer and closer to his return. And so to believe that Christ really is this fulfillment of hope, even looking back into Ruth, is to believe that our life now is dramatically different. And that we can seek God, seek to know him more immediately, seek to be changed, that we might embody the same character traits that we see in Ruth and Boaz, and even in Naomi's story. That we might be moved, not just to try to emulate what we see in scripture, but be changed. Be changed and live differently. So that we truly can be kind, but not of our own ability, but because of Christ has done in us. We can truly be generous, not because we've accrued all this wealth and feel like we can just be good in giving it away, but because we're compelled to by the love of God. And so then the question we have to ask is, okay, we have all these redeemers. This is what all this looks like, right? Well, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? You know, it's really important, like I started talking about, that we seek to acknowledge the unknown, that we seek to know each other more, to seek to know the joys and pains that are present in this room. Because they're here. All of you experience them. But how aware are we of the suffering around us? How aware are we 
of the battle for our very soul that's going on within. How aware are you of the person at the corner of the field, the marginalized and the estranged? And how well do you befriend that person? How well do you go to them, seek to love them, seek to bring them into your life, introduce them to your friends, feed them? This is the challenge of Ruth that can be uncomfortable but we have to wrestle with it because we, if you hear this word and you feel the challenge by the work and presence of the Spirit in you, you know that that's our purpose. That we're not just saved for us, but we're saved for others. And our actions from this point on are an expression of the love, the transformative love that is in us. How aware are you of those around you? How do you seek to be kind to them? How do you seek to embrace the estranged and the marginalized? And there's all sorts of ways that this looks like. This could be the refugee. I mean, this is a huge thing in our conversations in our culture right now. What does it look like to embrace and welcome refugees? And then even beyond that, what does that look like to love and accept and even seek redemption for the systematically oppressed in our world? These are important conversations for us to have and important conversations for us not just to have, but to act upon, moved and compelled by the love of God. There's one song that I want to end on that I just kind of found myself, I found myself reflecting over and thinking about, and it's an old Keith Green song, but I think, I think it speaks very well of what it looks like to move forward after sitting with the book of Ruth. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, the Holy One. Jesus, my Redeemer, the name above all names, the precious Lamb of God, Messiah, oh, for all sinners slain. And here's the chorus. Here's the resolution, our expression of gratitude, which sends us and commissions us to life in faith. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit until the work on earth is done. There's so much more for us to do, and God has given us the means to do it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your conviction would resound in our hearts of the fact that you have truly loved us that you do offer hope and you do bring about healing. And this is the work and presence of you in our lives. And at the same moment, I pray you would give us wisdom and discernment for how to go from this place and how to take this word of challenge to, prevent, to befriend, befriend the lowly and to love the lost. Show us how to do this, Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen. Go in peace. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.